0: Father, would you be with us this morning as we sit in our seats Let me take a minute just to be silent and still? Would you help us understand those of us that are followers of you that have committed our life to Christ, who we actually are in you? As we look at this passage of Romans today, I pray that that would sink down into our hearts, not just stay up in our heads, but it would sink into our hearts and eventually flow throughout our hands and the work that we do. So would you teach us this morning? Father, would you bring your spirit uh, to make himself known to us, to make the resurrected Christ present with us? We ask that you would do it. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, in 1968, there was a Elliot, and on the heels of Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated, she, she just felt really disturbed and sad um, of that fact. And she's trying to figure out, how do I teach my third grade class in Riceville, Iowa, about racism and the destruction of racism and the devastation of racism on the heels of this national event? The problem was she was in Riceville, Iowa, and all of her children were white, and they didn't have any people of color anywhere near them in the scope. And so how do you teach third graders about racism in that type of environment? She comes into class the next day, and she does an exercise called the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. And it's well-documented. You can look it up. But what she decides to do is she divides the room in half. She takes the kids that have brown eyes and put them on one side of the room, and she takes the kids with blue eyes, and she puts them on the other side of the room. And she explains to them that there's a recent discovery found that in certain parts of certain water if you drank this water there were minerals that actually helped you be smarter be a more superior person and the side effects with that you would have brown eyes so the brown eyed children are actually really smart they're they're capable above the blue-eyed children. They didn't get those chemicals in their water, and they're just kind of they're kind of lazy, and they kind of just don't really do much. But the brown-eyed children, man, you have superiority in your intellect, in your thinking, and the way you live life. And then she gave a couple prompts in the midst of the class. Um, the brown-eyed children got to go out to recess first for five extra minutes, and for a third grader, five extra minutes of recess—it's it's an enormous privilege. But the blue-eyed children have to stay back. She also made the blue-eyed children take cups to the drinking fountain. The brown-eyed kids didn't have to do that, but the blue-eyed children had to take special cups to the drinking fountain. Um, And what you started to see throughout the day in this exercise that she put in front of her children was that the brown-eyed kids, they started actually acting superior and they started actually believing that they were smarter and so when a blue-eyed kid went up and did some arithmetic on the chalkboard and normally they're really good at math they started believing that they weren't as smart and they messed up on their problem and all of a sudden the brown-eyed kids would start to hurl comments on the other side like well of course they didn't get it right they have blue eyes we wouldn't get it right we have brown eyes we're smarter and so what happened was because she labeled these kids an authority figure as a teacher and she said, "This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what is true about you." They started to behave differently. A couple years later in 1971, Palo Alto, California, there were some psychologists at Stanford University and they said, "We want to study the effects of the prison system." And so they put out an ad in the paper. They said, hey, any male college student, we want, um, we're going to do this experiment. If you want to be a part of it to experiment the prison system on people, um, you'll get $15 a day, which is about $100 a day for us, uh, to be a part of this experiment. It could last up to two weeks. They get over 75 applicants They narrow it down to 24 male students. They set up this mock prison. They have cameras. They're going to watch them. Uh, If you're familiar with this, it's called uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. And what they do, they take those 24 male students and they divvy them up randomly to two groups. One group, they are the prisoners. And one group, uh, they are the guards. And they tell them, listen, guards, um, you do not use violence against the prisoners, but exercise authority. You're the ones in charge here in this experiment. And prisoners, you need to listen and obey what the guards say because you, you're prisoners. And so they divide them up randomly. They give them identity as authority. They say, this is who you are. And the experiment's supposed to last two weeks. It lasts six days because the guards start abusing their authority. They start actually being physical with the prisoners. The prisoners feel totally subjugated. Like, and they had to stop the whole thing. So whether it's socially in a classroom or psychologically in kind of a lab environment, or maybe it's anecdotally. For me personally, I played basketball in high school. I was an okay player. I was a role player. My junior year of high school, I was backing up the senior point guard. We were a fairly good team. At the beginning of the year, we were uh, top 10 in state, and then we lost two games in a row, back to back. So our coach brings us in on a Saturday practice, which was abnormal at the time. It's not abnormal today, but at this time, it was abnormal to come in on a Saturday. He sits us um, uh, around the circle in the middle of the court. He stands center court, and he goes around in an attempt to kind of like go like, you need to get shaked out of your apathy. Like, we're a better team than this. But what he does is he chooses to go after every single one of us and tell us why we're terrible. It did not work. It backfired. But that was his attempt So he gets to me, he turns to me, he goes, Demeter, you hustle better than anybody on the court. You play unbelievable defense, but you can't shoot. I can't put you in the game. I know that's funny. I can't put you in the game (laughs) if you can't score, you're not a threat. And then he goes to the next person. So an authority figure speaks identity, speaks purpose over me about who I am as a basketball player. What do you think happens the next time I go out on the court? I get the ball. What am I thinking? Pass, 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 pass. The guy would just not even play defense on me. and I wouldn't take an open shot. I could make an open shot. I mean, I wasn't a Steph Curry, but like I wasn't terrible. I could shoot and make an open shot. But now in my mind, I'm going, I can't shoot. I can't shoot. I can't shoot. I can't shoot. What an authority says over you about who you are sometimes dictates what you do. Now, even if we think of that, again, socially, psychologically, anecdotally, and we could maybe resonate with some of those things, we really don't operate like that in our head. We operate in the way of what I do determines who I am, right? If you think about it, what you do determines who you are. In our culture, in our performance-driven culture, that's kind of our thinking, Right, So you close the deal, you ace the test, you make the sale, you get the raise, and because of those things, you feel accomplished. You feel, this is who I am based on what I do. And we saw this all the time. My wife and I worked with athletes for years. When they would perform well on the court, on the field, in the pool, man, they felt great about themselves. They felt like they had a sense of worth, a sense of identity. This is who I am. Look at what I did. But if they didn't perform well... Man, it just felt like worthless. Like, I don't even matter. I don't even count. The problem with that mentality, this idea of the world's formula, of what you do determines who you are, it bleeds into our Christianity. Right, so we determine if we're a good Christian, a good follower of Jesus based on, man, did I read my Bible this week? Did I go to church this week? Am I being a good person this week? I didn't fail in any big sin this week, so I feel really good about who I am. Again, the world's formula is kind of this idea of what you do determines who you are. The problem is the Bible doesn't talk about our identity that way. The Bible actually reverses it. The Bible doesn't say what you do determines who you are. The Bible says who you are determines what you do. Who you are at a core level determines what you do. It's what we heard about that anecdotal and the social and the psychological idea of like an authority speaking over you saying, this is who you are. As you begin to let that soak in and begin to believe that, then you start to behave in congruence with who you are. And that's what the Bible says. Who you are determines what you do. So the question is, what are you believing about yourself? And how does what you believe about yourself drive your behavior? How does what you believe about yourself drive your behavior? This is why knowing who you are as a Christian is so massively important. This is why not only do we come in and we rehearse the story of God every Sunday, but it's not enough just to rehearse the story of God every Sunday. You need to be individually getting in your Bible, listening to what God says is true about you, listening to worship, that old phrase, a quiet time. is something that you do to begin to understand, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. Because if you don't do that and you operate in the world's formula of like, well, this is what I do, and based on this is what I do, this is who I am, you start moving towards legalism. You start pretending. You start performing. You start to have pride if you're doing it well. If you're doing it bad, you start to have shame. And the Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible says this is who you are. And remember who you are. And based on who you are, that will dictate what you do. It's the same reason why the Bible is so, makes such an emphasis on names. We don't care about names in our culture, but the Bible says, this is your name. Start living out your identity based on who I say you are. And this is where Paul's going in our series on Romans chapter 8. If you're new, this is the fourth week of a seven-week series called Life in the Spirit, where we're looking at Romans chapter 8. And if you've been with us, you see right before that, Romans chapter 7, what is Paul wrestling with? He's wrestling with what he does. He's fighting this this battle between his spirit and his flesh back and forth, and he's failing the battle often, but he's not letting it define him. That's why he comes so hard in Romans 8 to say, this is actually who I am. And this is who you are. If you're a Christian, he's writing to the church in Rome to give them assurance to say, listen, there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And then we read at the very end, we've been reading the very end of the chapter. If you want to know what a chapter is about of any literature, right? You look at the intro and you look at the conclusion. If you look at the intro and the conclusion of chapter eight of Romans, what is Paul doing? He's assuring the Christians. He's saying, this is who you are. Start living like who you are. But most of us walk out of this room and even, uh, it's interesting, even trying to learn how to be a better preacher and to understand that discipline and that art. I've been reading a lot and watching a lot of videos and um, there's a decent amount of folks that say like, when you're preaching, here's what you need to focus on. Tell them what to do. They need to know when they walk out, what should I do? And I appreciate the application. I think the Bible is full of application. We saw, even in Romans 8 so far, there's Paul's giving application. He said, don't set your mind on things of the flesh, but set your mind on things of the spirit. We saw last week, kill by the power of the spirit, kill your sin. There's application necessary there, but Paul always starts with who you are. He always starts with who you are, and instead of you walking out of this room and going like, okay, I've got the three things I need to do, and as I do these three things, I'll become a better Christian, what if instead of understanding what to do, you understood who you were? You understood leaving this, this is actually who you are, this is who God says you are, and if you start to believe that, it will begin to affect your behavior. But again, a lot of us try to fix our behavior to give us our identity. And again, the Bible is saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to define who you are. Even in the negative sense, we see this true in the biblical story, right? Like you are a sinner separated from God before you come into a relationship with Jesus. That is why you do the things you do, because of your sin in your heart. It's who you are dictates what you do. But again, Paul is giving us new lenses to see those of us that are in Christ. And we talked about that last week, this idea. Like if you've made the decision to give your life to Jesus, you have a whole new identity. The Spirit dwells in you, gives you the power to obey God. So that's where we're going to go. We're looking at verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Four verses this morning. And what I want to do is I want to build off um, what happened last week in verse 14, spend a little bit of time there, and then look at um, how this unfolds, how Paul unfolds, verses 15, 16, and 17, based on verse 14. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans 8, if it's not already there. Romans 8, and we're going to be I mean, honestly, you could, you could spend a whole week on every single one of these indicators that we're gonna see in verses 15, 16, and 17. So we'll be somewhat flying through this, but hopefully this will give us some handles to go like, this is actually who you are. And as you start to believe that in your heart, it will dictate what you do. It'll change what you do. So verse 14 says this of Romans chapter eight. Paul says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if you were with us last week, you saw all this language that Paul was using in a couple verses previous about this if language. If you're in Christ, but if you are in Christ, then don't you know the Spirit dwells in you? He's giving assurance to go like, if you're not in Christ, this isn't true of you. But if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Him, then this is true of you. He's giving true assurance. So he's saying, if you're in Christ, if you are a son of God, you're being led by the Spirit. I love this language. This is shepherding language to me, this idea of a shepherd that has a flock of sheep that call those sheep his own. He is leading them as a shepherd. What it doesn't say, and and for some of us, if we read, we go, well, sometimes the Spirit leads me, me personally, and I don't obey. Like in my sin, in my stubbornness, in my pride, in things, I go like, ah, I just, I I don't do it right. Does that mean I'm no longer a son because I'm not being led? I don't think that's true. I think the idea is like a sheep will do all kinds of dumb things, but it's still being led by the shepherd. It still knows who its shepherd is. And so for us to have an indicator of are we sons and daughters of God that we would be led by this shepherd, and for us, it's helpful, this delineation that Paul is giving is going like, I don't want to give false assurance. If you haven't made this decision to surrender your life to Jesus, these things aren't true of you. They're not true of you, but if you have, they are. And so what he means by that, this idea that um, we can have this conversation that, um, that man, all, all people, all humans, sometimes people say like, we're all children of God. Uh, and I think what they mean by that, I don't, I, I, I don't know. But I think what they mean by that is that we're all created by God. That is true. We are all creations of God. We all bear His image as humans. It's stamped on us. We're meant to reflect Him. But we're not all children of God. The Bible doesn't use that type of language. The Bible says we're all creations of God, but we're separated because of our sin. And God still moves towards us. He still loves us. While we were yet sinners, he, Christ died for us. He still moves towards us. We're all creations of God, but we're not all children of God. Children know who their father are. And we talked about this in the Gospel of John. John 1:12 says it this way. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. So there's a believing, there's a receiving of understanding that you are adopted as a child of God. There is something that happens where Jesus says in John 5 that you've crossed from death to life. You've had Jesus pay for the forgiveness of your sins. You're now adopted into the family of God. If you haven't made that decision, you're not what the Bible will call a child of God. The world might say that, but the Bible doesn't. And to be led by the Spirit is an indicator of being an adopted son or daughter of God. It would be like this. When my kids were little, we'd be hanging out with a couple other families. The adults would be in another room. We'd be having conversation, enjoying each other's time. And the kids would maybe be in another room watching a movie, right? The ultimate babysitter. And so... Um, when we would kind of finish up our conversation, if we were to leave first, our family left first, I would walk into the room of 12, 15 kids, however many it was, and I'd say, okay, Demeters, it's time to go. Three kids out of the 12 would stand up, and they would follow me, and we would leave because I'm leading them because I am their father. The other kids wouldn't stand up and leave. You're not my dad. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to follow you. And so the same is true that a a, a son or daughter of Christ is led by the Spirit, that you're understanding your relationship with God, that God is the one that leads you. The world doesn't lead you. Your friends don't lead you. Your neighbors don't lead you. The Spirit is the one that leads you. That's a helpful delineation because, um, again, in in verse 15, he uses the phrase that we are adopted sons of God. Adopted sons of God. Tim Keller uses the language this way uh, in an effort to help us understand the, the cultural context that Paul is writing to in Rome with this issue and understanding of adoption. He says this, Adoption was a much more customary legal procedure in the Roman society than it was in Hebrew or Near Eastern culture. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have been familiar with it. Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir to his estate, he would then adopt someone as an heir. It could be a child, a youth, an adult. The moment adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his actions, his debts, his crimes, etc. But fourth, the new son. Also, had new obligations to honor and please his father. All of this lies behind the passage here. So, the question for us is if we're trying to be uh, um, people that aren't defined by what we do, but to understand who we are, what does it mean for us to be adopted sons of God? What does it mean for us to be adopted sons of God? There's five things that we're gonna see in the next three verses. There's plenty more, but we're just gonna focus on these five. And again, we're gonna kind of fly through them. You could spend uh, each week just looking at depth of some of these indicators of us being sons and daughters of God. So here are the five. Security, intimacy, assurance, inheritance, and shared suffering. What does it mean for us to be an adopted son or daughter of God? If we are who the Bible says we are, if we follow Jesus, these things become true of us. We have security, we have intimacy, we have assurance, we have inheritance, and we have this thing called shared suffering. This is where he goes in the text. And this is why this is so important for you. If you're a Christian in this room, if you follow Jesus, you need to start understanding these things are true of you. When we fall into sin, it's because we're not believing these things. Things. We're believing other things. And so, for us, again, to, to flip that equation, to not say what we do determines who we are, but who we are begins to determine what we do. Let's look at these five together. Look down back at your Bible, chapter, uh, verse 15, this idea of security. Security, it says this For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. To fall back into fear. Do you know if you're a son or daughter of God? You have a security that the world will not and cannot offer. You don't have to fall back as a slave to fear anymore. Will you have fear as a Christian? You absolutely will have fear as a Christian. But just like that sheep that's protected by that shepherd, if a wolf comes up, that sheep is going to be scared. But if the sheep knows that the shepherd is going to provide, is going to protect, then it can rest easy, even in the midst of the fear, even in the midst of the teeth, because it knows that the shepherd will provide and protect for it. Do you know, Christian, that you have a security, not based on what you do, but based on who you belong to? That the God of the universe loves you, will protect you. You are secure based on the blood of Christ, not based on your behavior. That changes the way you live, changes the way you operate. In this culture, a servant or a slave or somebody that worked for somebody, they are under obligation to obey the master. Because if they don't obey the master, there will be punishment. There will be some type of job loss. But you, you're you're not working for the father. You are a child of the father. A child has different privileges, different security. You know who you are. Like you guys that have kids in the room, you understand this. Like there's nothing my kids can do. There's nothing my kids can do that will hinder uh, our relationship to the point of me going, you're not my son anymore. You're not my daughter anymore. Right? Are my kids going to do dumb things? Of course they are. They're people. They're humans. But there's nothing they can do that will make me love them less. There's nothing they can do that will make me go like, I, I want to continue to move towards you. I want to love you. I want to help you. And that's the same truth for you. So you're not dictated by your behavior when you fail and when you sin. Like the father says, no, 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 you're mine. There's nothing you can do to change that. You have security if you're an adopted son or daughter of God. That's the first thing we need to be aware of and need to be um, reminded of. The second is that we have intimacy. Intimacy. Not only do we have security, we have intimacy. Again, uh, verse 15, for you do not receive a spirit of fear of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Some of you guys might know this, but the the language is Arabic there. The language Abba is translated, it's this intimate uh, way of relating to a father. It's probably closest related in English to daddy. Do you know if you're an adopted son or daughter of Christ that you have an intimate personal relationship with the king of the universe? You get to cry, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave to fear anymore, which you were before you came into a relationship with Christ, but now you have security, and now you have this intimate, personal connection with the king of the universe. Even think of kings back in the day. Uh, The subjects would have different access to the king than his children would, and we're called children of God. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, Hebrews says, because of our right relationship with Jesus. We have an intimate level, an intimate connection with Jesus that is secure. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a pastor uh, way back in the day, he says it this way of this passage. He says, Abba was a word lisped by a little child. Let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba Father. It is a very strong word, and clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry, it expresses deep emotion. What then does it imply? Obviously, real knowledge of God. God is no longer to us a distant God. He's not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. It's possible uh, to one who is not a child of God at all. He's saying you can believe in God intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally, even if you don't have an intimate relationship with God. You could do that on the surface, but once you come into a relationship with Christ through the blood of the cross, now you have an intimate connection with God. That changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see the world. If you are a son or a daughter of God, do you know you have an intimate connection with the king of the universe? You have security you have intimacy, you have assurance. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, little s spirit, that we are God's children. We have assurance if we're sons and daughters of the king. What does it mean to testify? If you hear that word testify or testimony outside of the church, you hear it sometimes in the church, somebody gives a testimony, they want to testify. But if you hear that word outside of the context of the church, where do you usually hear that language? Courtroom. Somebody stands up and they testify on a case. What makes a testimony trustworthy? It's based on the character of the person testifying, right? A testimony is somebody bearing witness to what has happened, the events, what's happened, if it's a crime, or, and they're sharing their angle, their side of the story, their truth, and their uh, testimony is only worth if they have character as a person. If somebody gets on the stand and they're a liar, they're a cheat, they're an embezzler, is their testimony going to have much weight to it? Probably not. So for us, as we examine this word "testified," like uh, who is testifying in this verse? It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God. Does God have the worthiness? <laughs> if anybody's going to be put on the stand, can we believe God? When he says it's true, it's true. It is. And so what does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testify about us? How do we have assurance? Because he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the word spirit, we've talked about this through this series. Paul uses the word spirit about 21 times. And there's two or three times that he uses the lowercase s spirit, like in this uh, verse right here. What does that mean? He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not using it as a title for God that he does with the capital S. But um, lowercase spirit means, in the original language, the power by which a human feels, thinks, wills, or declares. It means our soul. So if you look at it that way, God himself, his spirit testifies, gives witness to our soul that we are his children. What does this look like if you are a follower of Jesus and you've had those moments, whether it's in worship or you're reading your Bible or you're in community, and all of a sudden in your heart of hearts you go, he loves me. This doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't understand it. I'm still in my sin. But as you worship, as you pray, as you trust him, you hear this voice coming inside of you. You're going, I don't know where this is from. And he's going, don't you know I love you? I love you. I love you. I want you to move towards me. I care about you. And that's what the spirit does. He calls us children of him based on his testimony, not based on ours. That should give us incredible assurance to know who we are. If you're a son or a daughter of God, you have security. You have intimacy. You have assurance. It's not based on what you do. Oh, I messed up again. And and some forms of traditional, or, or Christianity would say, like, you can backslide into this idea where, where you're no longer a child of God. I just don't think the Bible teaches that. I think your salvation is secure because it's not based on your behavior. It's based on the cross. And once you give your life to Christ, you're secure. You're sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you sin, the Spirit speaks to you. He convicts you. He helps you to go, like, this isn't, who you are you're operating out of a way that that's not really who you are let me help you understand who you are and let's turn and repent from this type of behavior you have security you have intimacy you have assurance and then you have inheritance verse 17 says and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ This word heirs, which he uses multiple times uh, in verse 17, it's where we get our word inheritance, right? We're probably more familiar with that word than we are the word uh, heir. But uh, inheritance is something that you get as a son or a daughter when somebody passes away. You receive an inheritance. And in the ancient world, you would pass your inheritance down. Why? So that you would keep the family name. That's why you would pass your inheritance down because names mattered and they were important, and you wanted to pass down your inheritance. That's why this adoption piece was so important in the Roman culture. They wanted their name to continue, and so you would receive something. I have a friend that um, he's a pastor, and his dad's a pastor, and his dad lives in Georgia. And um, his dad said, "Hey, getting older." he happened to be in town. He said, I, I want to I have dinner, and I want to talk about my last will and testimony. Like, I, I, I want to, there's some things we just need to cover while I'm still of sane mind, right? So, so he goes out to his dad for dinner, and um, he knows the subject that he's going to talk to about his dad. He knows his dad knows the Bible, so he starts with this joke, and he goes, Dad, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Um, I'm assuming that you're operating in Proverbs 13, 22. Proverbs 13, says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And he says, you're a good man, aren't you? To his dad. Meaning like, you're going to write my kids into your will, right? And his dad kind of laughs at him and kind of comes back at him and says, well, actually the reason we're coming together is because I have the opportunity to write you out of my will at any time I want, legally. He goes, but the reason I wanted to bring you here is to talk about your brother who's adopted. Because they had adopted his brother, and in the state of Georgia, the law says that any adopted child, you can write out your biological children in your will, but any adopted child, you cannot write out of your inheritance. And so his brother said, oh, I better get friendly with my adopted brother. Like, because, because the law um, protects that inheritance for that adopted child, that when you adopt that child, you cannot write them out of their will. You, they will get an inheritance from you. And so when the Bible uses this language of adoption, it's helping us understand that our inheritance is going to be guaranteed. That you are an heir with God. That you are fellow heirs with Christ. Paul uses this idea of uh, what's to come for us once we uh, leave this place and go to the next place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about our heavenly dwelling. And what Paul says about the Spirit is that the Spirit acts as a guarantee to our future inheritance. The Spirit is like the down payment, that when the Spirit is inside you, when you trust Christ with your life, that you are guaranteed an inheritance in the afterlife. The idea that one day when Christ comes back, he makes all things right and all things new. There will be no pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more anger. All of that stuff will be gone and it will be waiting for you. That you have an inheritance that this life feels really hard a lot of the times, and it is really hard a lot of the times because of the brokenness in our world, but you know one day you will live for eternity with those things guaranteed for you. And I've called yourselves sons and daughters of Christ because of what he's done for us. That changes the way we operate. If we know we have that coming, it changes the way we live today. You have, as a son or a daughter, of Christ, security, you have intimacy, you have assurance, you have an inheritance, and this last one helps us move into this category. If you know all those things are true of you as a child of God, it helps you move into this last category here and now, and it's this idea of shared suffering. Shared suffering. Verse 17 again, and if children, then Heirs, and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. This word suffer in the original language is where we get our word sympathy from. And it literally means to experience pain together, to suffer with. So you don't do this suffering on your own, kind of in a vacuum by yourself if you're a child of God. You you suffer with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason we... Uh, can suffer and are called to suffer. And it's an indicator of being a son or daughter of Christ is because in a broken world, as God's adopted children, we're called to do what? We're called to love. We're called not only to love our neighbor, not only called to love our family, we're called to love our enemy. And every time you step towards love, there is a death involved. There is a suffering involved in moving towards loving someone else. That's an indicator that you are a son or a daughter of God. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know that you have all these things? If you're a son or a daughter of Christ, if you've given your life to Him, these things are true of you. Do you really believe these things? Do they sink down into the depths of your soul, and are you letting them affect the way you live your life? You know, we talk about confession Every Sunday in our liturgy, it's the second thing we do. We start with adoration. We talk about confession. And usually, um, we're talking about confession in this idea of uh, admitting that you have done wrong before the Lord. You have operated in your flesh. You haven't operated in the Spirit. And that because of that, what we're called to, what the Spirit calls us to, what we call ourselves to, is admitting those things and turning back to who you are in Christ to repent of those sins that you've had all week long. And that's a good practice of confession. But you know, confession has two sides of a coin. That's the side we talk about all the time. The next thing we do in our liturgy is called assurance. That's the other side of the coin of confession, because you're admitting who you are in Christ. And sometimes we don't think of confession practice that way. Maybe we do a lot of confession of our sin and the things we, but we don't confess a lot who we actually are. And so we walk around in our life and we don't shoot the ball because somebody has told us, like, you can't shoot, you can't shoot, you can't shoot. You just sin, you just mess up, that's not really what matters. And you go, like, I I forget. And it wasn't until my senior year that a coach came along and said, actually, you could shoot really good. Like, you totally have the green light. And it totally changed the way I played basketball because I had somebody give me confidence, give me assurance to say, actually, you, you can do this. And I started playing totally different. And the same thing is true with us. If we are in Christ, we need to start understanding what is true of us. We have security and intimacy and assurance and inheritance, which allows us to move into shared suffering. We need to believe that truth, and that's what Paul is saying to the church in Rome, and that's what he's saying to us. This is true of you. Start to believe it, and it'll change the way you behave. You know, um, kind of as we close, I... I uh, I've, I've never had to question um, if my parents were my parents, right? Some of you have had to do that. You've had to do that work. I mean, I mean, sometimes, like, I go, like, am I a part of this family? I don't, like, I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Like, I, maybe I was adopted. I don't know. Um, but my brother and I look alike a lot, and we resemble my parents a lot, and there's nothing in my story that would make me believe otherwise. But if there was... If people were like, oh, no, those aren't your parents. You don't belong to them. What would I do to to get evidence of like, no, 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 those are my parents. I'm their child. What would you do? You go back to your birth certificate. You go back to pictures in the hospital and pictures leading up to that. And you go, no, these are actually my parents. I'm actually their child. And the reason we do what we do in response every single week is to look at our birth certificate to go like, man, I'm gonna walk out of this room and everybody outside of the Christians in my life and maybe some of the Christians even in my life are gonna tell me, what you do determines who you are. And I'm gonna come down to the king's table this morning and I'm gonna actually go, no, I'm actually a son or a daughter of the king. Because of what Jesus has done with his body being given to me with bread and his blood shed for the forgiveness of my sins, this is my birth certificate. This reminds me that I have security and intimacy and assurance and inheritance. All of this is true of me so that when you walk out these doors, you remember what's true of you. You're loved. You're cared for. There's grace. There's forgiveness. And based on that, you live out of love, not the other way around. So as we respond this morning, as we come to the table this morning, would you be reminded of who you are? If you're questioning your worth, if you've questioned because of your behavior, would you go, if I have given my life to Christ, this is true of me. And as you make your way to the table, would you help it reflect the way you live, the way you behave, how you treat your friend and how you treat your enemy? Let's be those people that are reminded that uh, what we do doesn't determine who we are, but who we are determines what we do. Let's pray together. Father, would you remind us of that this morning? As we need reminders of being your children, God, would your spirit testify to our spirit, even people in the room that need to be reminded of who they are in you because of their weak? Would you speak to their hearts? When we look back at things like our baptism and things like the communion table and other times that you have met us, would you remind us of those truths, that we are secured in you, that we have an intimate connection personally with you, that we have assurance that we have an inheritance waiting for us, and because of that, that moves us into suffering with others. God, would you make it true of us this morning? We ask it. We pray it make it sink from our heads down to our hearts we ask it in your name amen we're going to spend some time responding as we do every single week here there's going to be communion service that come down we're going to respond with singing which again is a tangible way of remembering who you are i don't know how many times i've sang songs and in my head the next sentence is like well that's not true i don't i don't feel that way at all if I'm being honest with myself, and what singing does is it rewires the truth of who I am as a child of God. So we're going to sing by faith those things. We're going to spend some time praying. There's a a prayer space off to the side if you want to go in there and write a card of something you're struggling with or uh, something you need to be reminded of of who you are as a child of God. We would encourage you to take that time in that space, and then we're going to spend time coming down for communion. This is an invitation for those that are found in Christ. You've given your life to Jesus. We would invite you to come down and remember who you are and what your worth is based on the bread and the cup. So then it'll be silence and then Quinn will give us an invitation to move. We'll just go row by row. Your brothers and sisters will hand you a piece of bread which represents his body. You can dip it in the juicer which represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins and be reminded of who you are in Christ. There's a gluten-free option in the middle, if you have need for that. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll respond. God, thanks for the good reminder that we're not slaves of fear, um, but Father, we, because of our adoption in you, have freedom. We cry, Abba, Father, make it true. Give us an intimate connection with you this morning. We ask it in your name, amen.